Hi, this is Lindsay Jacobs. And this is Rachel Weiskittle. Welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Today we're going to talk about telepsychology, and Lindsay did a wonderful interview with our colleague, Dr. Tara Alfonso, about her expertise in telemedicine. For a lot of us, using telehealth services with patients is somewhat new to us because we've had to do it because of COVID-19 and social distance practices. But Dr. Alfonso has been doing it for years and has a lot of training in it that she's going to talk to us about. And I'm excited to learn some tips and tricks that she'll introduce us to. Yeah, this was a really fun interview that I had with Tara. So I'm excited to share it with everybody today. And listeners, be sure to hang tight once the interview ends because Rachel and I have some really great resources that we want to share at the end of the episode. I guess I'll go ahead and introduce Tara, Dr. Tara McBride Afonso. She's a staff psychologist at VA Boston Healthcare System, and she's also an instructor in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. McBride Afonso specializes in providing psychotherapy, assessments, and caregiver support to homebound older adults and their family members. In addition to in-person care, she's been providing clinical services via telehealth for several years. She earned her doctorate from Nova Southeastern University, where she carved out her own geropsychology-focused training. And then she went on to complete a pre-doctoral internship at Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA in the Gero track. And she did a postdoctoral fellowship in geropsychology at VA Boston. In addition to clinical duties now, she also supervises psychology fellows who rotate through the home-based primary care setting, and she's a member of the Disruptive Behavior Committee at VA Boston. So without further ado, here is that interview. Well, thank you so much, Tara, for being on the podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you about telemental health and learn about what your experience is like and also get some information about ethical and legal considerations. Yeah, thanks for having me today. This is a really nice topic, especially during COVID and how everyone's kind of thrust into doing telehealth almost 100%, if not. um, At least a little bit. (laughs) At least a little bit, yeah. So how did you get interested in geropsychology or working with older adults? Well, I think that a lot of it came from my upbringing. Um, When I was born into my family, there were five generations alive on both sides, on mom and dad's side. Um, So that created a pretty unique experience. I grew up surrounded by older adults, naturally, with that many people in the family that were still living. I had grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents. And I remember how, you know, my great-granny McBride, was. she was just fiercely independent. She lived in her own home until the end, up into her late 90s, and used to, you know, on a weekly basis, fry chicken in her cast-iron skillet, which... <laughs> Comically, her doctor had said, you know, 
Miss McBride, you really need to stop eating fried chicken. Your uh, cholesterol's high. And this was when she was in her 90s. And she's like, eh, I don't think I'm going to worry about that. <laughs> um, and so I had a lot of people around me where I was, I was really privy to late life experience and the range of aging. Like I said, Granny McBride, fiercely independent to some of my other grandparents who ended up needing more assistance in skilled nursing facilities and a few having Alzheimer's disease. So I think that that experience, seeing that spectrum of late life and also my family really normalizing it, um, mm-hmm. you know, that the kids in the family were not sheltered from funerals or going to a nursing home or talking about kind of what's happening with the grandparents. Um, and that really end of life became pretty normal, like a normal part of, of being from a really young age. So I think part of that is what got me interested in, in late life. And also, you know, it wasn't until my second practicum in graduate school, I was at the Nova Counseling Center for Older Adults, which really kind of opened my eyes to that part of psychology. Going into graduate school, I knew one thing. I did not want to work with children. Yeah. <laughs> I have some wonderful colleagues who do that that really hard work, but I just knew that was not where where I was going to land. So I think that the the Nucoa clinic really helped me to understand what treating older adults is like. I was mm-hmm. able to do individual therapy, cognitive evaluations, group therapy, couples counseling for older adults. And alongside that, I worked in a geriatric uh, medicine clinic as a Mm -hmm. consult kind of person. And then also we had an interdisciplinary fall prevention clinic, which was amazing to work with so many different disciplines. So I think that really opened my eyes to what being a geropsychologist might look like. And obviously I had some great mentors who helped keep that passion going throughout the years in my training. That's really amazing that there was five generations when you were born that you had your great, great grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Granny McBride. Okay. What was her secret? (laughs) I I mean, I'm, I'm tending to think it was the fried chicken and cast iron, (laughs) but I'm not really sure. Um, I, I know that she wasn't a drinker or a smoker, so that could be part of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also that the life that my great great grandparents had and and what they were exposed to is very different than kind of what we do now. You know, more working outside and being physical versus sedentary, and you know, seeing all of your patients sitting in a chair to <laughs> telehealth, right? So I think that uh, maybe movement is also a secret to living that long. Yeah. We need we need an an invention where maybe you're on a treadmill and you have you can have your computer set up mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can walk and do these telehealth sessions. Yeah, I mean I think we're halfway there. We have bikes with screens on them to ride when we're working out, so maybe maybe there's something there. All right, listeners. <laughs> Somebody has to make that invention for us. Mhm. When was it that you knew that geropsychology was a, a field? I asked that because, um, because I, you know, myself, I didn't realize that geropsychology was a field until I started looking into graduate programs. I think around my first or second year of graduate school, because I had to take, you know, developmental aging and early development classes. And the professor who was leading the 
older adult intervention class, uh, Michelle Gagnon Blodgett, who was a big influence on me, was a geropsychologist. And I was like, whoa, what? you're a what? How does that, how do you get there? Like, I didn't really realize that that was a thing. So I think that it's interesting that you asked that question because I, I think that, you know, we think about psychology and a lot of people think about Freud and psychodynamic mm-hmm. um, psychologists from or psychiatrists back in the day. And we know that neuropsych is a field and we know that child psychology is a thing. Um, uh, but I think that geropsychology doesn't get that light like those yeah. do. Yeah. I, well, I know you've been providing uh, mental health services via telehealth for a little while. How long has that been? How long have you been doing that? I think it's about three and a half years now. Um, mm-hmm. Having said that, I did have a little bit of experience doing telehealth during my internship year at the VA in Cleveland, but it was minimal. And then after fellowship, I ended up working for a, um, a private company that actually did mostly telehealth services for nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities. So about 80% of my time uh, was telehealth. And then the other 20% was actually what they called boots on the ground, in-person mm-hmm. care in the nursing homes. Uh, oh, yeah, wow. So a little while now. <laughs> now, when you were in that role, what sorts of activities or things would you do on telehealth? It started as mostly individual therapy, but moved into more of assessment, doing cognitive and capacity evaluations via telehealth. Um, I had the privilege of working directly with a facilitator who was a medical assistant who was actually in the building wheeling me around on a computer um, oh, to the patient. So, cool. so she was my eyes and uh, legs kind of <laughs> in, the, in the facility. Um, and she was able to provide the, the prompts and the materials and kind of take away the papers as we do testing, which was really neat. Um, and we, I also did some behavioral management of difficult behaviors in dementia. So I would actually, with her assistance, be able to see uh, my patients in their, you know, normal everyday activities and observe how they interact with staff and how they would interact with other people in the facility in the common areas, which was really neat to be doing uh, via telehealth. That is so cool. I had no idea. So do you know if this is a common practice for nursing homes to be offering telehealth services or have a psychologist or other mental health provider on telehealth? Or was this pretty innovative for this nursing home? Um, I think it was pretty novel for them. The company is now, I think, nationwide providing telehealth and in-person services to nursing homes. But I think that the more rural areas are the ones who are more commonly having the telehealth providers. Um, and then the facilitators usually live within a certain driving distance of the facility. So can, can come and facilitate that care. I think now it's, it's going to be way more common, but I yeah. think when I was doing it, you know, two years ago, it was more novel, definitely. And an adjustment for the patients and for um, the staff, you know, it, I will never forget the days when, you know, my facilitator was out for the day or on vacation and I would drive the hour and a half or two hours to the building to actually see people in person and the reactions from the staff, they would kind of look at me and then 
and then look at me again to try to figure <laughs> out why they know my face um, because they just weren't used to seeing my whole body. Uh, so, and, and same with the, with my patients, they were like, oh, hi, you're here, like actually here today. <laughs> um, so I think there's a, a, a kind of interesting component to it too, to where when you actually do see the person in person, it's a different experience. Yeah, I've provided therapy via telehealth, but I have never, I've never done cognitive testing or capacity testing, uh, a capacity assessment via telehealth. <laughs> what is that like? Um, I think with having a facilitator, it's not much different than what we would do in person because they can be your hands to give the materials and take them away and keep the test security. Um, but I think a lot of the challenges that people are running into now is that we aren't all as lucky to have a person who can actually assist, who's trained to assist in the room with the, the patient or veteran. So I think that it, it's much different depending on your circumstances, mm-hmm. but it can be, it can be really, really neat being able to do some of these things remotely. Um, and I think there's a lot of talk and, and effort going in right now about modifying testing and getting more normative data for those instances where we don't have someone's hands in the room that can, you know, hand over materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there, uh, even, even with someone there in the room, an assistant, were there any challenges to doing like a cognitive assessment or a capacity evaluation via telehealth? Definitely. I think first and foremost, a challenge is training the person who is facilitating to not provide feedback or repeat what you've said. Um, Mm -hmm. If the person doesn't hear, because I think it's a, it's a human tendency to want to help and clarify. It's almost an automatic thing that we do, (laughs) you know, even, even in conversation, if you've got three people and one person didn't hear the other person might say it. Um, So that's one challenge um, that can be mediated by just training and understanding, explaining the reasoning. But with older adults, a challenge is hearing. We have that challenge even in person. Um, Mm -hmm. I think over technology, it can be even more difficult at times. And I remember there were times where I wasn't able to provide therapy or do testing via telehealth because it really was a limitation to how meaningful that could actually be. Yeah. I'm curious how... COVID has changed the way you have provided telehealth um, or if there have been any changes in the way that you provide it or the the frequency or the content? Yeah, I think that COVID has definitely changed the frequency. You know, working in the private sector and then now working in VA, when I came to VA, I'm doing home-based primary care. So there wasn't a lot of need for telemental health services. I mean, that we were really exploring. I mean, there was a push to do some more, but we're going into the home. So that face-to-face and seeing the home environment kind of took precedent. And then in comes, you know, stage left, here comes COVID. (laughs) And that changed dramatically. I'm doing almost 100% of my visits via telehealth, whereas I was only doing maybe 5% telehealth prior to COVID. So it's definitely different. And something that I I haven't experienced before was doing telephone therapy 
Um, mm. I, I was used to doing telemental health via video, which is much uh, more similar to an in-person encounter versus on the phone where you don't have that body language or the, you know, the visual observation or input that goes into the conversation. It's more of the voice inflection or the pauses that you're looking that you're really paying attention to. So that's a big change for me. Mm -hmm. Have you encountered any unique barriers or challenges to providing telemental health, either via video or telephone that's unique to this COVID era? I don't think I've had any that are unique to COVID. I think that the biggest challenge with telehealth in any time period um, with really any patients is the technological piece and getting comfortable yourself with the technology and being able to help the patients connect via technology and whether that's, you know, in the VA where we can send VA issued iPads or coaching the family to help them to set it up. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of a lot of learning for both the provider and the patients, I think, with telehealth. Mm-hmm. What legal considerations should psychologists or psychology trainees know about delivering mental health services via telehealth, either by video or telephone? I think a big one that comes up is um, being aware of your state or organizational rules about who you can provide services to, you know, when you're in the clinic, patients are coming to you. So the location that you're providing services, you're licensed there and you're able to provide services. So thinking about where does your patient actually live? Do they live right across the border, 10 miles in another state? Are you able to legally uh, provide services to them? Does your license cover you in that area? So that's one of the big ones to think about because that's something we, we don't have to think about when we're doing in-office care. Um, one of the, I think, important things to keep in mind is that you can't practice across state lines, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, which in the VA is very different, right? Because you can have a license to practice in one state, but live in another state working in the federal government in the VA and be able to practice. So yeah. I, I'm getting that information about where the person, you know, your patient is located in that moment is, is really mm-hmm. important. So that, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I think something else to think about too, is the nuances of telehealth is that in reality, your patient could be calling you from their car, right? Mm-hmm. And, and where are they parked? You know, are you, are you at the target parking lot and where is that? What's the address? Having said that, I, I think that a lot of the guidance for ethical considerations is, is to really set up those expectations ahead of time and saying, you know, if, if we're doing sessions, it's best that you're not in your car and targets parking lot for confidentiality and privacy, but also, you know, just for those emergency situations that you can provide the care that you need to provide to them. Yeah. Um, and also legally you, you want to keep yourself actively informed about all of the rapidly changing rules and coding for visits, the policies that are coming out from, you know, from national to state during the, especially the exceptions that are changing almost Mm -hmm. day to day for COVID. 
and keeping up with that because I think as things evolve um, that some of those exceptions might go away and you don't want to be operating under the, oh, I thought that was still okay, uh, which can be sticky. And it's changing all of the time, so it's really challenging to keep up with all that. I think another thing that I think about for legal considerations is making sure that you have developed a protocol and a, a way of handling emergency situations for crisis for your own practice. And also if you're supervising trainees, what that's going to look like, you know, thinking about rules about whether as the supervisor, what is considered being on site for your trainees, seeing a patient, mm-hmm. is that ability to pop into the video visit at any point, should you need to, or is that actually being in the video visit, but not saying anything. So those are things to think about too, and how to handle um, crisis situations when you're not in the room with a patient who might be expressing some suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation. And, and how do you really, how do you reconcile that um, when Mm -hmm. they can disconnect by clicking the red X right on the screen. And then you're kind of left with a, with you maybe on 50, 20 miles away. Um, how do you, how do you handle those situations to keep the patient safe? In your practice, have you had that, that experience or, uh, and I imagine you, you have a protocol. So let's say you're on, you're in a video session with a patient and there's concern about imminent risk. Mm-hmm. What steps do you take? Well, right now in my current role, um, we have a platform that allows for address confirmation and an E911 service that's connected with our videos. Um, So in the beginning of the visit, you confirm their address that they are at home, and then you pre-validate that so that if there is an emergency, you can click the E911 and it'll connect you with the local police department and provide that address to where the the person is. If you don't have something like that, uh, making sure that you are getting that information up front in that way, when you, when you do have something come up, you know who to call rather than if you just call 911 from your location, it's going to connect you with your local police department, which is not necessarily who needs to be contacted. In the past, when I was doing telehealth for nursing homes, that was very different because I had a person in the room with the patient and they could get another uh, nurse to come sit with the patient and then go to the facility social worker and they would call the local, notify the local people that they needed to notify. So I think that's why I brought up that developing that protocol and um, having a plan in place for when it does come up. I haven't had it come up since doing uh, therapy during COVID, that's not to say it won't. Um, mm-hmm. So just being prepared for when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. What ethical considerations would you suggest that psychologists and psychology trainees keep in mind when they are delivering telemental health services? Well, I'll start with the privacy piece since we already started talking about that privacy and confidentiality is and informed consent are huge with telehealth services. I mean, we we provide informed consent when we're in person, but it changes when you're doing telemental health. It changes in the fact that there's a lot more opportunity for others to overhear or 
be privy to the conversation that you're having. Um, so really providing good informed consent about the limits of confidentiality and privacy when you're using video conferencing, whether that's you might be using a less private platform like FaceTime and really acknowledging the limits that that has, right? Versus mm-hmm. a HIPAA compliant um, video streaming service that you might be using through your organization. Um, and also talking to your patients about do they have a private place in their house where they can sit? You know, do they have a noise machine they could put outside the door? Who else is going to be home? I talked to a lot of people about um, using headphones mm-hmm. because then at least if someone is to overhear, they only hear what the what they are saying versus also both sides of the conversation. So they're not right. getting the whole, um, the whole conversation and also how to ensure privacy in the home, just providers and trainees thinking about asking those questions, you know, who's home right now? Is there anyone else in the room? Because they might not be in the frame, but they might be, you know, off in a corner desk um, and really getting the patient's permission, like, explaining that they might hear some things that we're talking about and is is that okay with you you know it's up to them who can actually be there for the visit um and then in your own home if you're providing services from home you know who's home are, are your kids running around like uh, so many of <laughs> the, so many of the professionals in america you know if a zoo uh, professional meeting isn't complete I don't think without a child popping in in the back or I think laughing. that's it like zoom bomb right uh, <laughs> I think that was the term <laughs> right so you know zoom bombing you or really talking to the people in your home about the importance of maintaining privacy for your patients yeah. a second thing that comes up a lot is um, maintaining boundaries in this kind of climate and also providing telehealth services you know you as a provider, you are kind of in a um, specialized environment when we're in our office. There's not a lot we can control what is in there that's personal or discloses any kind of in details about our own background. Um, but that can be very different about the space that you pick or that you have even access to in your home that your patients are seeing behind you, right? Like not everybody has a home office that's set up, you know, and thinking about that and also thinking about how it's a little more intimate to be talking with someone from their home to your home and Mm -hmm. in such a um, a sensitive time with the pandemic that uh, I think, you know, our patients are, they want to know how we're doing too, because they just, they care about their providers and they want to say, you know, how is your family doing? Are you, is your school open? And, mm-hmm. and very natural things that we ask uh, maybe a friend or a colleague, whereas might not be, you might not want to share that uh, with your patients or you might be comfortable doing that, but just being careful about lowering the boundaries of a professional relationship versus a personal one, which can, can definitely be challenging when you're, you know, in your own home and they're in theirs. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially I have noticed myself, I mean, everybody, you know, during this pandemic being socially deprived (laughs) ourselves, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, being, being really mindful about like what we would be willing to share if we were in our work offices, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and really sort of reflecting on that and thinking about that when you're delivering services in your home. Yeah. 
or, you know, you're at home delivering. Oh, you're at home. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it it is. It's a, I think it's a game changer, um, the environment that you're in. And I, I know that people think about, you know, what they're wearing and all of those things too. But I did want to mention that APA has actually put out some really helpful articles with regard to telehealth in the pandemic and guidance about things like risk management, um, gaining competence in using and helping your patients navigate the software and hardware issues that arise. Because, you know, under the ethics code, we are supposed to be competent, right, in, in many areas. And that includes the software and the technology, being competent and using it and being able to guide your patients to do so as well. Um, they talk more about the limits of confidentiality and boundaries, like I mentioned. And then also, there's a really nice article about reopening your practice in COVID-19 and balancing the, you know, the goals of wanting to do, do good for your patients and also avoiding harm when thinking about resuming in-person services. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, we'll definitely include that information in the show notes. What are some common ethical dilemmas that arise when providing care to older adults or caregivers via telehealth? Most of them are similar to the ones that arise when we're face-to-face providing services. Um, And especially for my role in home-based primary care, you know, the being in the room with the caregiver and the patient at the same time and thinking about confidentiality and privacy and those sorts of things. But I think one of the dilemmas that come up are in the cases where you're providing informed consent over technology, you know, trying to explain how things are going to work or what it looks like with someone who might have some cognitive impairment or when they're really, you know, in the case of providing some behavioral management in my previous role, really trying to get assent from a patient who's pretty severely demented where when their family has already provided consent for the service. It's a little different approaching a older adult with dementia who you're, is having some difficult behaviors on a computer screen, which from their generation is way out of the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's much more difficult for them to understand kind of what is happening um, and why is there a face on a screen talking to me? Um, <laughs> so I think that one of the, like, ethically, we think about, you know, are, is that, providing that service to those people, is that doing more harm or causing more confusion or is it actually more helpful? So I think that's one of the biggest ones that I've um, encountered. Otherwise, I feel like it's very similar to um, Mm in-person services. Practically speaking, what steps would you recommend providers and trainees take before even delivering services via telehealth? What things do they need to consider maybe when setting up their telehealth space or getting prepared? That's a good question. Things like picking an appropriate space in your home, as we were talking about earlier. Um, If you don't have a home office, you know, sitting your desk or temporary desk up with a blank wall behind you. Or if you don't have a space like that, hanging up a sheet over the wall or over a doorway. So it's a, it's a plain background. So setting up your space where you can have uh, a private, quiet place to be doing therapy, thinking about what platform you're going to be using to deliver services. You know, I work in the VA, so I have the fortunate 
experience that we already have a platform and we have lots of guidance on what we could use when it doesn't work. Because the reality is it doesn't always work. No matter what platform you use, you may end up having a backup plan and using the telephone or having to use FaceTime or Doximity or one of the other platforms. So I think thinking through um, and doing your research on what platform is going to be most beneficial for the practice that you have, and then always having a plan B and C waiting Mm -hmm. um, because technology, as we all know, is not always reliable. (laughs) Um, And as we mentioned in the legal, when we were talking about legal considerations, just getting that protocol together of how you will handle emergency and crisis situations and also thinking about how to get your patients technology savvy you know how are you going to educate them what do they have access to you know are they using a computer do they have an ipad is it a cell phone that they're going to be using is that sufficient Um, or how to get them access to that Mm -hmm. and the other practical thing is thinking about what are you going to wear And that sounds kind of (laughs) vain, but um, the reality is that the cameras that we use and the software and the the internet only has so much bandwidth. So thinking about that when you're choosing your articles of clothing, things that don't have a lot of pattern that require a lot of bandwidth to focus because that can interfere with the quality um, of the video and be kind of distracting when, you know, the video keeps trying to focus and, and you're mm-hmm. just really trying to have a conversation with someone. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a really good point. I was on a, a Zoom meeting the other day and wore a striped shirt that had tiny little stripes. Mm-hmm. They were white and green and it, it looked very trippy. I'm not going to be wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> no tiny stripes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our, I mean, our, our cameras can only handle so much. <laughs> uh, so, um, so are there modifications that you make to the way that you practice or I guess more specifically your therapeutic approach? or the treatment that you provide when delivering services via telehealth compared to when you're delivering services in person? Yeah. Thinking about things that I've found to be helpful are to you know, allow for more pause or silence after someone stopped talking um, to really allow for that delay that the audio tends to have. Um, we all know light travels faster than sound, right? We learned that early in life. <laughs> But I think we forget about that when we're doing video conferences or video therapy, just really thinking about, okay, take an extra second to wait to make sure they're not done talking because maybe they're just taking a breath and they're getting ready to continue. And then as a lot of us who are providing these services on telehealth now, you probably have noticed that when you talk over someone, no one hears what anyone's saying. (laughs) It Mm -hmm. just... the it just can't handle it. It's not like being in the room where you can hear both lines of speech. I also tend to talk a lot with my patients about the challenges that come up. Like sometimes the connection fails or it times out or we're frozen Um, and thinking about, you know, what do we do when that happens? Or, you know, I might ask you to repeat something that you've said for clarification And sometimes that happens at really inopportune times, you know, when someone's talking about something that's 
you know, was traumatic to them. It's very serious and they're very highly emotional. And in person, you wouldn't have that problem. You would be silent and really listening and tuning into what they're sharing with you. Um, whereas on video, it feels really uncomfortable to say, you know, I'm so sorry to stop you in the middle of this really serious thing that you're telling me, but I need you to repeat what you said because I didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really talking about that up front, that that is a challenge to providing telemental health services, that the, that the technology can kind of get in the way of that. But I think talking about that up front can be really liberating because then the patient's not like, oh, they're not listening or this is so frustrating, right? To I'm really deep into this, this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds yeah. like doing a really thorough orientation or orienting the person to telehealth at the very beginning is something that can be, you know, really important, really valuable later on <laughs> mm-hmm. if these things arise. Yeah. Cause I, in, in-person services, we definitely talk with our patients and kind of orient them to the therapy process, right? If they haven't been in therapy, we say, you know, this is kind of what therapy looks like, and this is probably how we're going to do things um, and get their feedback. So I think it's a natural way to kind of transition that to to what does telehealth look like? Like, what is this going to be like? And just like you know, setting limits and just like a patient is not able to show up at your door at any point in time, you can't, you probably aren't able to log into a video session at any given time, um, mm-hmm. you know, that it, it's more structured, just like it would be in the office. Other than that, my experience has been that it, it doing telehealth is very similar to doing in-person services. And I know that in the beginning when I started doing telehealth, my concerns were, am I going to be able to build rapport with someone on a video? Like, is that going to be a barrier? Um, and I think that in the beginning, the you know both parties, the clinician or the trainee and the patient, it's a little strange, um, mm-hmm. especially if you've already been seeing each other face-to-face. It's a big difference. Um, but once both parties have really adjusted to the nuances of communicating virtually, that I I don't even tend to think about the video at all. Like it, like I don't even. It's not even in my purview to think like, oh, this is different than if mm-hmm. this person was sitting in front of me. It kind of disappears, and you're focused more on the person and the content and the process of the session versus the technology, given that the technology is working smoothly. (laughs) (laughs) So there's always that. And I also have noticed that there tend to be less no-shows or missed sessions um, using virtual care because it really removes a lot of the barriers to getting into the office, traffic, having to let the dog out, you know, right before the session or whatever it is that, um, you know, other things that can get in the way, it it kind of eliminates a lot of the barriers to getting into a session in person when someone can just go to the screen and turn it on. Do you know if there are any devices that are helpful that, that can be used with telehealth to help individuals who have hearing problems to amplify the noise? That's a really tough question. Um, I know that for telephone services, there phones do exist that actually 
kind of have a closed captioning feature where they have a screen where it types out the words that that the person on the other on the other end is saying for uh, the patient. However, that's another challenge because in order to have that service, an actual person is listening and typing. So oh. they're actually dictating it. Uh, wow. is my understanding. Yeah. So that's, that's just another layer of, you know, limits of confidentiality with regard to amplifiers. I don't know of any, but the thing that I have tended to recommend is for older adults who are hard of hearing to use headphones, mm-hmm. um, because that way the sound is going directly into the ear versus going into the room and to them. But otherwise, I'm not aware of any uh, helpful devices for, (laughs) you know, for this kind of technology and for this population. I think that hearing is a is a huge challenge um, for telehealth services. Yeah, that's Um, a really good point, though, about uh, using headphones. Another question that I had was about sort of just monitoring symptoms or progress in therapy over time. In, you know, in-person sessions, you can give them, you know, hand them a questionnaire to fill out. So I'm curious what that looks like over telehealth. Yeah, that can look at several different ways. In person, I tend to ask my patients, do you want to read this form and fill it out? Or would you like me to read you the questions and just mark your answers? A lot of times people say, just read it to me. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to read it. You just read it and we'll talk through it. Um, so I tend to, to give self-report measures in that way. And that would be very similar to telehealth, yeah. but also um, depending on the platform that you use, you can actually share your screen. So if you're on a computer, you can share the screen where they can actually see the measure and they can just tell you, you know, the number of the response or the answer, and you could mark it down in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit different than in person, but I think it's definitely doable. And now we think about you know measured based care, and how do we incorporate that into our practice? And I think that it's an adjustment for everyone um, and how to do this, but it's definitely doable. And I think it's pretty effective to be able to share the screen or even verbally administer the measures. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that you have provided just a ton of really helpful information for folks to think about as they're maybe getting started doing telemental health services or even, you know, currently practicing telehealth. And you definitely made it not scary at all. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. It was great to share, you know, my experience. And I hope that, like you said, it makes it a little less scary for those of you out there who are, you know, just diving right in or are are trying to figure out just how to navigate this in a, such a difficult time. So that was such a really fun episode to record. What did you think about it, Rachel? It was a really fun episode to listen to. Um, I listened to it while I was walking outside, and I wish that I had, like, a notebook with me because I kept wanting to write down some of the stuff that she was <laughs> talking about. So I, like, just, like, took out my phone and, and was typing some notes. 
because I have a little bit of telehealth background. Like I've done different group therapies and things like that. But, you know, like a lot of other people, this year was the first time I had ever done exclusive tele-mental health services or, you know, done psych stuff from full-time teleworking from home. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much from from what she was saying. Um, There are things that I didn't even think of before. Like when she was talking about wardrobe and like thinking about what you wear, I never thought about (laughs) how solid colors versus patterns would be. um, How did she explain it? It was like, if you wear patterns and it takes more data to like yes. send that visual information. And so it can actually make your connection a little bit um, more streamlined mm-hmm. if it's just like an, an easier palette and like less, less chaos in the visual field. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I've never thought of that before. I also really appreciated her talking about the nuances of the ethical considerations with telemedicine. That's something that I think a lot of people probably have questions about and something that I have had to do a little bit of reading about. And so I actually had consulted with her before this podcast about (laughs) that topic. And she, I think, raised some really interesting things to make sure we think about with that. Mm -hmm. Everything that Tara said is not only relevant right now, as we are in the learning process of using telemedicine as often as we have been this year, but it's going to continue to remain relevant, like pretty much indefinitely. I mean, more telehealth specific positions in both geropsychology and general clinical psychology are opening up. Telehealth is here to stay as a mainstream modality of therapy. So like I just this morning saw that the VA New York Harbors Manhattan campus is recruiting for three full-time licensed psychologists for their telemental health hub. So they have like an entire hub dedicated to this and they are like continuing to, to recruit psychologists to do that full-time. That's not uncommon these days. I'm seeing recruitment for positions like that um, quite a bit. And I have seen an increase over this year in positions that are being recruited for full-time telemedicine work. So this is a really important and expanding service that I think as geropsychologists is really important for us to be well-versed in, especially as many of our patients perhaps be become socially isolated or maybe become homebound or for various reasons have more difficulty coming in to the clinic and what might be more traditional, you know, individual psychotherapy or group therapies. And so this stuff is going to be important to not only learn now, but perhaps revisit or brush up on in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, those are really good points. And, um, and that's a nice plug too, for the VA, those new positions that, that <laughs> were recently posted. <laughs> I know they're lucky. That was just what I read like this morning. So I know there are a lot of other places that are actively recruited for, for telemedicine and in tele telepsychology. Um, so that was just one. <laughs> um, I did want to mention, so the CARES Act, which uh, most people listening who are in the United States might have heard of, which stands for Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. 
there is a, t- a COVID-19 telehealth program under the CARES Act, and it provides both organizations and providers with funding to purchase any necessary telecommunication information services devices to help treat patients during the pandemic. So this is something, obviously, that came about just within the last few months. Um, Another thing that I think is just really great is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, expanded telehealth services to include telephone-only services during the pandemic. So prior to um, this change, psychologists, behavioral health providers could do services, could bill for services using, you know, televideo, but couldn't bill for services using telephone only. And this is a a really huge benefit, especially for those of us working in geropsychology, because we know, you know, a lot of the folks that we're working with, it may take time to get those, you know, those devices needed for video telehealth set up, or they might be living in rural communities where, you know, internet connectivity or internet is not uh, available to them or it the infrastructure is not set up to be able to get internet at their home. So these telephone services are so important right now. And I read that CMS, they had expanded this, you know, telephone only services throughout the pandemic and it was supposed to be when they when they uh, announced this, it was retroactive going back to the the first part of March of this year in 2020. I think that it would be such a huge service, a huge benefit if it was possible to keep this option going. I completely even agree. Beyond, yeah, yeah. I mean, for all of the reasons that you listed, and also thinking about you know, the, you know, socioeconomic implications, you know, some people can't afford a smartphone or perhaps don't have a laptop. Maybe all they have is a phone that doesn't even have like video conferencing services. And so being able to receive therapy just over the phone without pressure of having any other requirements is so monumental in, in increasing the amount of people that could receive really valued services. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Tara and I briefly talked about in the interview was, you know, this legal issue about providing services across state lines. So it's a, (laughs) this is a really confusing time because for listeners, you might know that when you as the clinician and the client are located in different states, it's so important to know what the state's requirements are. So there are some states that allow, due to the COVID-19 emergency, they've eased requirements and they allow licensed mental health providers to practice telepsychotherapy across state lines There are in other states that actually require the clinicians to apply for a permission to practice in that state. And in some states, you still have to be, you have to be licensed 
uh, in order to practice in that state. So it gets really confusing during this, you know, state of emergency during this pandemic, because you have to go to each state board's uh, website to know what their requirement is. Well, and I, th- I think Tara mentioned this too, but as a trainee in psychology, if you work for a VA, so if you are a, a psychology intern or postdoc and you are working under the clinical supervision of a licensed clinical psychologist, you aren't able to see someone over state lines at all. Right. And that is something that is sometimes a change for people. Yes. Yes. That's a really good point. So this information is specific to, to practicing clinicians, you know, how to practice across state lines. But you're absolutely right that those individuals who do not yet have a license, that their options are, are limited, that they can only provide care to patients in the state where they're located under the supervision of a licensed psychologist in that state. And with the VA, it is different because you can have a license to practice in one state, but be able to practice in another state when you're working in the VA. So I ran across this amazing resource on the Shrink Space blog. So they put together this wonderful table that lists every state and links to each of the the licensure requirements for out-of-state providers. So we are going to provide this resource, this link on the show notes for this episode. They did all the the legwork for this. So it's a really awesome resource to have. It really is. And I think that the more we can spread the word about it, the better. Because it's something that's not just relevant for behavioral health providers, as it lists as one option, but it also is something that we can share with our medical health provider colleagues. And it even has additional information listed for each state about the emergency services and how that may be affecting care across state lines. I also found a really great resource titled The Therapist's Telehealth Guide for COVID-19. And this is on another blog, therapynotes.com. In this uh, blog posting, they provide information and links on telehealth training resources. And they talk about HIPAA-compliant telehealth platforms They share information on how to bill for telehealth sessions. They talk about using the telephone codes. They share information on Medicare billing or provide guidance on Medicare billing. This is a really awesome resource for folks to check out. And again, this is on therapynotes.com on their blog. And we're going to also share the link to this webpage on the show notes for today. There was another article that was just recently published. It's available on the APA website. The title is How to Provide Telehealth in Nursing Homes, and it was written by Drs. Jennifer Birdsall, Lisa Lynn, and Jeff Lane. 
the subtitle is follow these tips for offering essential psychological services to older residents during the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought this was going to be, I thought this is a really great resource to share, a really great article to share, especially after having had that conversation with Dr. Eleanor Barbera, you know, getting that insider look on the needs and the services that a psychologist can provide in the nursing home right now. You know, Tara mentioned how the APA has a ton of really great telehealth resources. So this page that we're talking about, that's titled How to Provide Telehealth in Nursing Homes, that's just one of the many pages that they have with great guidance and a review of different tips and tricks for telehealth that we'll also post in the show notes. So some other examples of useful pages that they have is ethical guidance for the COVID-19 era um, and what the ethics code says about reopening your practice now. That's something else that, uh, that's another article that Tara mentioned that I thought was a really interesting, had a lot of really interesting points that I actually haven't seen too many other people begin discussing in other places. Well, I think that that's all for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed and learned something. I know that I certainly did. Our next episode, stay tuned because we are going to be talking about grief in the COVID era. And actually, I'm going to be sitting back and learning a lot from Rachel because Rachel's going to take the lead and drive on this next episode. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Gero Psychology Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. Go to the contact page, send us a message, and that comes straight to our inbox. Also, we encourage conversations on Twitter. So you can tweet us at the Jero Podcast. And as always, we really appreciate any likes, shares, reviews. So feel free to do all of those. <laughs> yes. All right. Until next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>